Hello and welcome. This is the Filmmakers Podcast. It's a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie films to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in a very, very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson. I am a writer, I am a director and I'm a producer. Recently I made the feature film The Dare and A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, both of which have recently been in film festivals and still will be uh, until they're released very, very soon, which I'll tell you about when I can. This week I've been casting for King Arthur and prepping for King Arthur, which I'm shooting in three and a half weeks. Uh, Brilliant. Um, Lots of prep going on for that right now. And what I'm going to do while I'm away on set filming this and do a couple of on set reports. I think Robin McCain and Christian James and also um, a lovely guest fantastic Phil Hawkins is going to take over but I'm going to do live from onset of King Arthur if I can uh, and just do a couple of filling in what's going on thought you might like that but that's coming up uh, in the middle of September all the way through to middle of October so yeah looking forward to that I hope you are because I'm looking forward to filming it it's going to be fun Um, so anyway Today's episode is with the fantastic director, Adam Egypt Mortimer, who I met over at the Popcorn Frights Film Festival, watching his fantastic film, Daniel Isn't Real. He also directed his debut feature film, Some Kind of Hate, which was named as a horror classic by Fangoria magazine, and who doesn't want that? He is a really cool guy, and we chatted in depth about so much stuff Uh, it's given you so much advice for filmmakers we talked about how you work with actors how you can relax uh, giving you advice for directors some great little tips um, and why we're worthy to make feature films also how he managed to get Elijah Wood as an exec producer and slash producer on his feature film Daniel Isn't Real which is doing the festival circuit now if you can find that go watch it it's brilliant really brilliant links in the show notes to where it's playing at the moment so tonight is the make your film event this is tuesday the 3rd of september if you're in london if you're around come and join us it's going to be amazing you've seen all the tweets you've heard me talk about it we have susanna white we have leon clarence oh my gosh it's going to be great myself and dom noir are going to chat about filmmaking with these brilliant filmmakers and how they get the films made come down Tonight, come join us. This is it, your last chance to get some tickets. If there's any left, if they've not sold out by now, the sponsors of the Make a Film event are Performance Insurance. They're going to be down there tonight. So come and say hello. Come and speak to them. They can help you and advise you on the best way to get insurance for your film and what to do on set as well. So they'll be down. So come say hello. Tonight, do it. Um, Screencraft, for those of you screenwriters out there, The competition is going. The new one is up. If you have a pilot right now and it's ready to go, then get in touch. Screencraft.org. The final deadline is September 30th. But the early deadline... Oh, you missed it. Uh, So the final deadline is September 30th. So you've got until then to get it right and get it spot on. The drama one's just gone. You've missed that. The action adventure, if you've got any screenplays for that, is ready now you can put them in go to screencraft.org they have brilliant judges it really is the place to go to put your screenplay in why not do it right let's get to it today's 
rather fun, brilliant chat with myself and Adam Egypt Mortimer, all about filmmaking, directing, what it's like in the trenches, and his new film, Daniel Isn't Real, which stars two very well-known actors' sons. Cryptic clue for you there. Enjoy this week's Filmmakers Podcast. Adam Egypt Mortimer, welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast, my friend. Welcome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. We we met in a car in Florida. We met again mm. at a bar, at a pub in London, and now mm-hmm. across two continents we speak. It's like serendipity. It's mm-hmm. like it's supposed to happen mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. We were walking out of the bar in Miami at the Popcorn Frights Film Festival, and there was a guy throwing up on the street, delightful. And uh, one of the lovely organizers said, oh, why don't you just jump in? You guys, you're all going back to the same hotel. It's like, hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hey. <laughs> that was it. That was our introduction to yeah, each other. It was lovely. And and I don't know if it was lovely. I don't know if your listeners know how tall and handsome you are, because this is a, mm, an audio format. Of course format, they know. But, uh, do they? Okay, good, good. Do you- <laughs> I say it every week. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> hi, everyone. It's me. I'm tall and handsome still. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, haven't haven't shrunk Check. and gotten deformed yet. Well, that's, you know, good. <laughs> Knock on wood. And, you know, and obviously my listeners will see uh, from the photo I put up on Twitter, and if not on the photo that they find of you, how handsome and tall you are as well. Oh, this is an so, incredible mutual love club that's happening right do you now. See, do you like the way I said as well? Like, <laughs> I just, I realized I just picked myself up and I actually didn't mean to. And you see, it's just maybe it's the English sort of, um, self-deprecating humor and mm. maybe there's some Americans out there go oh my god look at him he loves himself what a dick <laughs> yes I am a dick but I don't love myself no I don't think I'm handsome or... I am tall though I'll take that mm. I'll take the tall <laughs> um, were you always tall and handsome is that something that no I have natural I mean that's actually that's sort of a deep and probing question in a way I mm. mean I was mm. when I, I was like younger you know like as far as like in high school I was actually quite short I remember, you know, in like middle school, I was like really small for my age, probably like one of the smallest kids around. And I was a very like picked last for the kickball team kind of situation and all that. And then uh, I think probably by the very, very end of high school, I reached my full height, but I was a scrawny like wisp. Like a friend of mine would draw a caricature of me where he would just like uh, uh, just like rub pencil lead on paper just like a wispy, like you could, be, you know what I mean? Wow. I was like that. And, um, and I, I mean, as far as being handsome, I, I, I feel, I feel like <laughs> in go. the past, in see. the past couple years, as I've sort of yeah. grown into my confidence on, on any number of levels, I've felt sort of, I, I, I feel like confident in a lot of ways. And so I, I like, I like to wear crazy, but also attractive fashionable clothes i don't know if you'd call them fashionable but i've sort of developed a fashion and and you know and i'm sort of like uh enjoy how i can make myself look and you know it's like uh uh, maybe this is a benefit for like not dying yet is that you get to live to the age where you sort of feel comfortable in your in your skin and your bones and that's a really nice aspect i guess of sort of the work i've done psychologically and physically like i go to the gym all the time i do yoga and and boxing both of which primarily to like feel not stressed out like i need to like how do i you know affect my mind by working through my body but the result of that is like oh maybe i'm you know relatively in shape for my body type Mm -hmm. and like you know and, and and so that's it's all these sort of positive effects and like 
you know, I meditate and I, I'll, like, I just do so much stuff to try to just feel okay in the world to do the job that we do as filmmakers. Absolutely. And, and like, a, yeah, because you know, it is stressful, right? So anything you can do to stop that being stressful, because I'm stressed right now. I'm just in prep for a feature and I'm TV show going on right now. And it's, it's a little stressful to be honest it's a little too much and it's really hard to sometimes take yourself away from that and go do you know what to do a bit of yoga do you know what go to the gym and when you're in the middle of it film you know prepping or whatever it's very hard right mm-hmm. do you find time to do that do you literally go no 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 i'm shutting off from filmmaking and i'm doing that yeah it's crucial i feel like that's super crucial and without it everything falls apart i mean it's actually you know i i think it's more than stressful it it has to do with anxiety and i think anxiety is a deeper, heavier, more destructive feeling than just stress even. And, uh, and, mm-hmm. so, and so I feel like I, I've come to realize that a lot of the prep that a filmmaker does is to reduce all of that anxiety and stress, like above so many, because on the day when you're there and you're lining up the shots and things are happening, you have to be in the moment. And like sort of let it flow. But at the same time that you're in the situation where when you're trying to let it be in the moment is the time when there's so much against you mentally. So how do you kind of balance that? Right. And and I, I think, yeah. you know, when I um I switched from doing like music videos and very stylist st- style oriented work yeah, like hip-hop to, you know uh, documentary uh, stuff and yeah yeah, all yeah. That kind of music like I, I, I switched I switched from thank you I switched from that stuff to wanting to make my first movie and and I felt like the place that was giving me the most stress was working with actors because I hadn't done a lot of that and I uh enrolled in like a workshop for directors to to work with actors and I remember the first interview I had with the teacher I was telling her, I just had this revelation in talking to her where I was like, oh, I feel really anxious about how to do this and how to do that. And she was like, yeah, everybody feels anxious about that. That it produces all of this anxiety. So if you figure out in advance, like what you're doing and how to do it and practice it, you'll feel less anxiety. And I was like, oh, is that, that's like the entire point of what we're doing is to like, it's not, I'm not like some unusual you know, brain meltdown person who has anxiety. That's like the the sort of entry level. We all feel super anxious about these aspects of filmmaking. And so all of the work is to reduce that. So we can sort of show up and float like a butterfly on the day. And how did, how do you do that then? Cause there'll be so many listeners going, Oh, it sounds ace. How do I do it? How did right. you do it? Well, it's this, co- it's this combination of, th- so there's the general, anti-anxiety action of all the things we're talking about. Like I, I do yoga, I box. Mm-hmm. The combination of those two things is just to like get out the sort of daily stress and poison in your body that makes you feel like tense, you know? And then, uh, and even when I was shooting my, my recent film, I was going and getting therapeutic massages every weekend. Like whenever we had a break, I was going and getting a massage, which I'd never done before, oh. but it was incredible. No, and I'm that's a- good. actually, you know, interestingly, so way back in the day when I was trying to figure out how to make my first movie, every time I met a director, I would like try to sit them down and, and ask them, you know, a- a- as you do, try to try to get advice or whatever. And um, every single person gave me a piece of advice that at the time immediately in the moment I thought was like garbage advice. So like, you know, cause, cause you're sort of like, you're like, what's the secret? And you're expecting that they'll be like, okay, man, like always use the 50 millimeter lens and like mm. light, the, you know, like I was expecting some technical thing or, or always sit like, if you just sing 
you know, this song by Journey right before, you know, <laughs> or like, I don't know, like some mag, I don't know yeah, what yeah. the fuck I was hoping for, but, um, you know, I asked one guy who is like an award-winning uh, avant-garde theater director and he was like, I think oh, you should right. get more massages. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? What the you, fuck? You get more massages. Yeah, exactly. And then I, uh, yeah, and then I had lunch with, uh, Vincenzo Natali who directed, uh, oh Q yeah, great director. Some other thing. great director. Yeah. Right. And we, and we talked about a lot and he gave me a lot of tips, but like this one piece of advice that he was really focused on was, uh, you know, and it's like, he leans in close and you're like, oh, I'm about to really get the secrets of the universe now. And he was like, I always bring a second pair of socks so that after lunch I can change wow. into a second pair of socks and I just feel like a new man. And I was like, what the fuck does oh, that do you know mean? What? I get that. But, I get but, that. But that's but the thing. I love wearing right. new socks. So, so, right. So, so I was sort of getting all of this feedback from all of these people that were saying these things that sound kind of ridiculous and don't have anything to do with filmmaking. But eventually, mm-hmm. once I started the practice of working with actors and preparing for that, I was like, oh, they're all just describing the ways that they personally uh, deal with anxiety and make themselves feel more, you know, make themselves feel more in the moment because your feet aren't bothering you, your muscles aren't bothering you, know, whatever these things are, to find a way to like connect to your body, be comfortable and be in the moment and suddenly you're going to be a better director. And I was like, okay, that, that was all really good advice. I just had to sort of Understand. It's kind of like in Karate Kid when he's like, "How is painting the fence going to help me be good at karate?" And then one day he's like, "Oh, I get it now. It all clicks." Yeah, I get it. Yeah, so like someone like self. Ah, so so massages and and sock changes and anything else like that is painting the the fence. And 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 so so that's you know so that's one way. And the other way is to to be um, you know maybe slightly more helpful to your listeners, like like you're saying. Is that um, to be fair? I think that I, to be fair, I, yeah. I think that's really helpful. I think it I is. actually do. I'm like going 100. percent I'm doing that now. I can't believe I haven't before. Um, new socks and a massage, if I can, and a coffee. That's you. Know, I'm like, why am I not doing this all the time? Yeah, all Please, of these things. On, all on. of these things to make you comfortable. I mean, it's and it's also why yeah. I, um, you know, I get annoyed when people sort of scowl at the act that like actors who like make all of these kind of wild demands. You know, like. Be like, I'm a, yeah. you know, oh, so-and-so, like, she insists on having, like, only this, like, special chamomile tea, like, flown in, and, like, what a diva, or, like, this guy, like, will only travel with his chihuahua, and all this stuff, and it's like, <laughs> man, we are asking actors to do the most insane job that has ever been invented by our species. It's so abstract mm-hmm. and emotional and vulnerable, and, like... Very. Yeah, if they They're need the ones their on stream, chihuahua and a and, yeah. a and a cup of special chamomile tea, like that's what they need. That's what it takes. Like it, it's such a weird job. So I I I never believe it when somebody tells me an actor or actress is difficult. You know these. I, I always think like I think you maybe just weren't accepting what they need. Um, I like that. So, so I how did you related. when you how did you when you first started to work with actors then? that first moment when you, you made some shorts, how did you start that process of actually talking to them and going, you know, from the music, you know, um, music video background, doc background, and suddenly go, okay, I'm directing actors in a scene. How yeah. did you do it? How did you, how, what was your process? Well, it's interesting because I, I guess I, I look at it as a, there was a before and after the, 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 because at a certain point I, I, I really made this decision where I was doing a workshop and I was taking acting classes and like all of this kind of stuff. Um, but I, I had made, like you pointed out, like some shorts and things like that beforehand. And, um, 
I think in some ways I was just winging it and, and hoping for the best, but still feeling um, sort of uncertain or feeling like I didn't have a technique. Like I didn't go to film school. So this is another layer of anxiety. We are always sort of thinking like, am I doing this right? You know, I didn't go to film school mm-hmm. and I, I didn't work as an assistant to other directors. I've, I'd never worked on a set that I was not the d- directing. So I never like saw other people in action or anything. So I, you know, so that's the, interesting. Yeah. yeah. You'd never done first aiding or producing any of that for other people's like, yeah. music videos or short. Yeah. Wow. No, I, I, I sort of worked my way up from doing editing and motion graphics and things like that. And, and, and then saving money and just paying to, you know, shoot my own stuff and like really not knowing how to do it so that that for years that was a level of like this kind of uncertainty or anxiety or am i doing this right like god if only i'd gone to film school i'd know how to do this better um did you is that, does that mean that, sorry to interrupt does that mean that you felt because this is fascinating that you didn't feel worthy or, or that you deserve to direct a feature because you hadn't gone to film school well we, it's weirdly i guess i i guess i did feel worthy because i'd elected myself of uh of like I should do it. I was like, I'm going to spend money, my own money and shoot a thing. Or like, I'm going to demand that I shoot this music video. So I, I guess in some ways I felt worthy. I just felt uh, like I didn't know how. So I was, okay. I was wor- somehow I was magically, I d- decided I was worthy because it was something I wanted, but uh, n- n- totally incapable <laughs> or something. I mean, it's just this weird. I think we all have this. It's this weird mix of, of like, we you know, we, yeah. we, we all feel sort of like, uh, totally should be doing it we have these ideas and we have this approach but also like uh, that sound it's a, you know, it's a weird feeling isn't it because you kind of go yeah i'm i want to go make a feature and i've been working on these scripts and this is what i want to do but at the same time there's this voice in the back of our heads that goes oh yeah i don't know am i am i really cut out for this can i really do this and obviously i say this to my listeners all the time yeah you can and this is your vibe but there's that voice in the back of your head. You still get it now. I'm sure you do too when you sort of go, oh, yeah, maybe this isn't my calling. You know, you you get these voices and these things that bring you down and you've got to keep pulling yourself back up and going, no, of course I am. And of, of course, this is what I want to do. Absolutely. It's so important to remember that everybody has those voices and those voices, mm-hmm. those voices are totally meaningless. And they are, they are, those voices are just a another little bit of a challenge for you to get over on your path to, to doing the thing. Like those voices are fucking lies. I mean, interestingly, and you know, <laughs> the movie that I just made is about the voices that tell you things that are different than what you but want to be so doing. They're so interesting right? talking about that. Yeah. Daniel isn't real. We'll come to that in a minute. Absolutely. Yeah. No. yeah you're so right. Um, That's really interesting. We're talking about that. But so I, so I guess, you know, so I'd made a couple shorts and I'd done, um, you know, these documentaries, these hip hop documentary series, which was Really interesting, you know, working with real kids. So they weren't acting, but just the level of interaction I had with them was really satisfying and interesting and working with talent in that way. Um, but then I, you know, I, I took these workshops and acting classes because I I had written this movie called Some Kind of Hate, which looked like it was going to mm-hmm. get financed. And so I felt like, oh, fuck. Like, you know, it's like, oh, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I'm going to have to make a movie now after all this desperate hope to make a movie. Now it's going to happen. Oh, fuck. How do you make... And and part of what my technique was at that time w- was to kind of jettison everything I had learned and had done and the people that I had worked with. 
on on music videos and things. And I said, okay, I'm going to sort of forget about the like style forward aspect. I'm going to not work with my same cinematographers. Like uh, everything's going to be different and, and, and completely change the focus into what is a narrative and what is acting and, and how am I going to approach that? So it was, you know, I really sort of cut, cut ties with how I had been working and then tried a new way of working and, that's um, really interesting because I think that's that's brave because I imagine a lot of people have gone, I'm going to stick with the people I know, even though it's a different medium, if you like. And we can call it a different medium because music videos are amazing, but they're often three minute pieces that you don't sustain characters for longer than, you know, sometimes a minute within that. So I find that really interesting that you said, I'm going to see this differently and go find a different cinematographer, which in this case was Benji Bakshi, yeah. who's gone on to do some amazing, amazing work, including um, Bone Tomahawk and uh, Broad in Cellbot 99. And you, uh, that's really interesting, your choice to do that. Yeah. Did you know at that point that that was your sort of goal? You went, no, no, I'm going to literally switch my mind and yeah, focus I did. there. It was very on purpose. And I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend so much energy on... Um, workshopping scenes and working with actors and and I really just want to sort of like reorganize my my DNA and and understand how to make a movie and and, and do it differently and and then I I think that part of um you know and I talked to a number of cinematographers sort of interviewing for the job and and Benji uh was just super brilliant when I talked to him he was a graduate of AFI and and it's like if you can ever work with anybody from AFI they are so well trained in such an interesting way, and I, I always really love people that come out of that program. Um, but he had this technique up that had where he showed me he made graphs of the emotional okay. state of the movie throughout the movie. It was this crazy thing where you it kind of it looks like a stock, you know, like a like a Nasdaq yeah. chart, like ups and downs and things, and um and wow. where we would go through the uh, the emotional sort of arc of each character and graph it scene to scene. Like in this scene, she really wants to be achieving so-and-so, but she's not. So she's at this low point and then up. And and then, and we used that as a way to sort of inspire visual ideas, you know, where we'd be like, wow. oh, if, if you look at this chart, like up, like she's really spiking up here. So that's when we should have a lot of lens flares or like that kind of, you know, like we, we had this sort of visual language connected to, the emotional chart. And when he told me that that's how he worked, I was, I, that's what made me hire him. Cause it's sort of like, you I'm talk to all these people. Who, yeah. You, you talk to all these people that, and they're all going to have a base level of like, their work looks good and they technically know how to do it. So what's the extra thing that makes them the right person for you. And, and, and in that case with that movie, so that movie, you know, not everybody knows it. It was a very small movie, but it was a, it was my attempt to make a, a very low budget slasher movie that took seriously the emotional life of the characters, or as I put it at the time, like the emotional pain was equally as important as the physical violence. And to sort of, mm. you know, is there a way to shoot a slasher movie that would be like a teen indie drama instead of like a horror movie? And so our list, so our listeners know it's called Some Kind of Hate. It's uh, it's cool as fuck. Go seek it out as your debut movie. It is almost sensational. It's really fucking good. Oh, thank you, man. And I appreciate that. It, I, what I really like was it's you're going down a journey, like you say, the teen movie, and then it sort of flips. It has these different. It's dark, you know. If you like these angsty teen, not I say teen's the wrong word. You like these angsty dark horrors where you know 
people want to get revenge or people want to do it's just great you know uh supernatural elements in there as well um vengeance on bullies you know it's all that stuff that i love yeah um, and it's it's cool i mean yeah so so well and and yeah so i so i think that that you know as i was putting that together i had this like anxiety in a way or this this you know a deep concern i felt like i had this thing to overcome which was that i don't want people to think of this as a uh low budget horror movie because then they're all going to mm-hmm. show up and sort of treat it like it's this thing i need i need yeah. to make sure they understand that it is a uh it's an indie film uh and that, that I elements. take seriously, right? That has violence yes. and scary, yeah. you know. And and so I felt very, very focused on trying to explain that to people. So therefore, when I met Bang, and you know, and every cinematographer I met with on the movie innately understood that, and they came to me with a lot of beautiful poetic ideas. But because Bangji's presentation of like the emotional graph of the characters, I was like, okay, we're going to communicate about this movie in terms of emotions, not in terms of you know how. I mean, and then you do, of course, also wind up talking about how can we make it cool and how can we make it scary and what's the color palette. But to begin with Mm -hmm. the emotional thing at that stage in my career was so important to me because it was the first time I was really thinking about things in that way. And I was so concerned Mm -hmm. about people, you know, and I really noticed this for a minute. We were going to shoot the movie in Vancouver and some of the people that and I went out to Vancouver and we were there for like a couple months putting it together ultimately that completely fell apart and I had to come back to LA and we did it differently. But when I was in Vancouver, which is a place that, that, you know, U S companies shoot a lot of TV in Vancouver and like sci-fi channel movies shoot there and that kind of thing. And I felt like I was really, especially up against talking to, um, sort of production people, line producers and things like that, and try to explain to them, like, this isn't a low budget movie. It's an indie movie. And there is a difference. There's like a, a difference in approach about what that means, even if it sounds like you don't know what that difference is. And, and you know, because they'd mm-hmm. be like, all right, we can bang this out in 18 days. And da, 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 da. And I'd be like, we're not banging anything out. It's not going to be 18 mm-hmm. days. Like, that. you know, I want to have, let's hire less crew members so I can just be there in a room with a couple people and have the actors and have the time. You know what I mean? And it was like in Vancouver, they had a hard time even understanding that approach, or at least the people that I, I happened to that. talk to. Um, Mm. so yeah, so, so that sort of focus on the emotional language and the emotional importance of it and me bending over backwards all the time had a real influence on my directing style, especially in talking to actors. So when I would talk to actors about certain scenes, I would be like, I know on paper, this is like you're banishing a demon or whatever plot thing, but let's talk about Mm -hmm. it in terms of. This, you know, and then I would tell a story when I broke up with a girlfriend and it was incredibly painful to me and we'd had these really toxic personalities da, 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 like that's what this scene is like this scene. You're not banishing a demon. You're breaking up with somebody who has emotional problems and has been hurting you. And and you could see that. Yeah, like they would get, you know, and and so that's how, you know, it was always like looking for the emotional subtext. And I guess that was what I was starting to realize was the power of um, uh, of what you can do when you work with actors and what you can do when you prepare in advance. So to, so to go back to something you were asking before, like the preparation mm-hmm. would have a lot to do with looking at every scene incredibly closely, understanding what is the emotional event, what is the scene about in an emotional way, how is it connected to my real life in case I need to talk to the actors and say, hey, like, you know, my mother died 
many years ago and this is what that felt like or I had this breakup mm-hmm. or like, you know, any, any or maybe it was something positive. I never think of positive things. It's always dark. But <laughs> oh, it's positive things too. Um, you know, Brilliant. and like that was an important part of the process that would remove anxiety because I could walk into any scene being like, I know why this is true and real and connected to me and that's going to help the actors if they need it. You don't need to push that on them, but if they need it, I'll, I'll have these tools in the arsenal. And then the other thing was... And this became really apparent on my second movie. But because I didn't go to film school, I was so concerned about doing it the right way and like preparing correctly that I really deeply prepared every scene and the whole movie in terms of like what the visual style is and, and, and you know, how, how to make sense of it and would write up these very comprehensive documents where I would figure out how does the whole movie have a visual arc and how are we going to achieve it? And what does that mean? And in, so on some kind of hate, I was insane about it. Like my Benji thought I was a crazy person because I was uh, one of the important things on that movie was like you say, it sort of starts feeling like an indie drama and then it becomes the supernatural thing. Mm -hmm. And, and there was a design, a visual design in that movie that where it's like, if because I wanted it to do that emotionally in the story and also do it, visually. And so it's like the beginning of the movie, it's long lenses and handheld. And the end of the movie, it's wide lenses and pushing cool dolly shots. And I needed mm. to to get from one to the other in a, in a slow evolution. So it wouldn't feel like yes, two different movies. Yeah. And so I, you know, I broke it up into style sections. And I was like, this first part of the movie, da, 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 da. and each style section, I was like, we're only going to use one lens. So I think we only, we had a set of four lenses for the whole movie. It was these vintage anamorphics that Bangji purchased. And it was like, we had a 40, a 50, a 75, and a hundred anamorphic lenses for the whole movie, which, and I highly recommend, I always highly recommend to filmmakers reduce, like be really clear about what your lenses are, reduce your choices. Mm And then I reduced it so much that I was like, the, these pages of the movie, we were only going to use the 100. These pages of the movie, we're only going to use the 75. These were only, you know, Moira, the the slasher, you know, the, the, the villain, the monster mm-hmm. character, she will only be shot with this line. You know, it was like really specific. So we'd go into a room and Benji would be like, can't quite, uh, you know, it's really, and I'd be like, sorry, man, we have to use the 75 here. And he was like, you are the craziest. Why are you doing this? To-? You know, like. But it, it, it provided like this incredibly rigid framework um, mm-hmm. so that there would be this kind of, you know, this set. And you can feel as the movie's going forward, or at least the intention was, I, man, that, that you know, that. it's sort of opening yeah. up as you go forward. It's becoming more stylish because Moira, she her point of view as a supernatural revenge monster is taking over from the chaos of yeah. these like young men with their shaky cameras and their long lenses. She's taking over into this different form. So that was the intention. And I don't know where I got that idea from, but once I had that idea, I was like, I think this is what a director is supposed to do. So I'm going to like really like march down this path. That's great. And do you know what you, what you did there was you stuck to your guns and it's so easy on set to suddenly go, Oh God, like you say, your DP uh, Benji's saying, actually, should we just change to the hundred? It's a better shot. And you could have easily gone, yeah, you're right. Let's do it. And I love the fact that you didn't. You went, no, I'm yeah. sticking to my plan because that is my vision for the movie. I'm directing this. You, you've got to trust my vision as I'm trusting yours. And that's huge. I remember I did that uh, with Andy on the dare uh, when we were shooting that. I had a specific style for every single scene and it got like yours, got bigger and bigger. And there's certain points where I went, 
I really want to change this now. And Andy would turn to me and say, nah, stick to your vision. Stay to what, true what you wanted. And it's like, yeah, of course. And I'm glad you did that. I think it's really important directors have that. Otherwise, you're just winging it. Like you say, oh, you're God, going, yeah. all right, stick 75 oh, no. on. Stick yeah. the 100 on. But, but at the and same really time, important. right, you, you also have to make it possible to make a change, to not be, like, you want to sort of have this yeah, foundation but not be rigid. Of course. And, um, yeah. So there are times on that movie when we would be like, all right, it just, you know, if we use the 100 here in this tiny room, because all we can afford is this ridiculous tiny room, it's just going to look like shit. So we'll put on the 75. Nobody's going to fucking know the difference. But if you're that stringent about it and you really have to make that decision in, in, from moment to moment like that, then overall the aesthetic will, will be there. And I, and I think if yes. you're too rigid yeah. and you're like, we will only shoot on the 100 because I said so three weeks ago in the comfort of my home, then, <laughs> then you, you really risk fucking things up and, and making everybody enough, yeah. sort of mad. And, um, you know, on, on Daniel, there's all of these rules. I made so many rules in that movie and then we broke every single one of them. But the fact of making the rules um, and understanding why we made the rules gave the movie its style. So let's talk about Daniel Isn't Real. This is your... Absolutely brilliant. Uh, second feature, shall we call it? I mean, I know you worked on the anthologies and stuff, but it is absolutely brilliant, immersive, really cool, psychological, <sighs> indie, thrilling, horror elements, drama. Uh, I watched this at Popcorn Frights and I was just blown away. I wanted to see this movie because of the poster. And I remember sat on the beach, and I think I was on the beach with the Quiet Place writers, um, <laughs> Beckham Woods. And mm. I remember thinking, I could just stay here and go for a beer and carry on the night. I remember turning to Bart, who my lead, and who was over there with me, and I went, I really want to go see Daniel Isn't Real. I really want to see it based on that poster. I didn't know you then. I hadn't got a cab with you then. We hadn't watched yeah. a man throw up across the street. Um, and I went, I want to go see it. I don't know why there's something in me that wants to go see this movie and it's mainly based on the uh the poster which is fantastic and i went to see the movie in in the cinema and it was just brilliant really enjoyable really dark twisted fun out there cool um tale and i really loved the way it was made i thought it was really high-end filmmaking brilliant performances clever with the way you did the transformations and that's not giving away a spoiler mm. um and i yeah i i'm really proud that then that night i got a taxi with you because you know i'm proud was just a stupid thing to say i'm <laughs> proud i got a taxi. i was i was grateful when i got a taxi with you that night because i was like let's have a chat and then we agreed to do the podcast the next day and that's cool um yeah so well, yeah I, thank I, you I, for all of that i, I really like that. I, I appreciate that i mean that's you know it, it it's so huge to get, you know, when filmmakers respond to your work that way, it's just, it's like the most meaningful thing. So thank you. I, I appreciate it. And it's just so My nice pleasure. to feel seen, you know, to like when you work yeah. on all these things and then people are come back and they say the things that you were hoping that people would feel and you go, Oh fuck. Like, wow. That's, it's like magic. Wow, I, you know, it, it's, ma- it is, because it's I, telling a story is one thing, but creating a feeling, which increasingly mm. I'm understanding is what our job is. You know, when people like you said the word immersive yeah. and it's like, that's a feeling. And it's like, if you, you know, then it's mm. like you sit down to create and you're like, maybe if we move the camera this way, people will feel that way. It's such a ridiculous thing to think. And then it, when that comes true, it really feels like magic. And and from that, we're sort of doing that within the cameras can be a character or the camera is one of the characters for a while, you know, and, mm. 
as a filmmakers, we can choose that. We can make that decision. We're not just sticking the camera there and getting the action. We're going, what, why am I putting it here? Who, whose point of view is this? And as long as the camera's a point of view sometimes, then it, it really works. And you really did that with this film. I didn't know who I was rooting for, who I felt yeah. icky for, where, yeah. you know, the mother's a brilliant character, you know, and you was like, why well, am I supposed to like her? What, what? Even the, you know, the girlfriend, you're kind of like, okay, she's great, but then is she not? And just great, you know? Um, do you want to give us a small pitch? Oh, yeah, sure. So Daniel Isn't Real is about a 19-year-old kid uh, named Luke who is in college, but his life is really falling apart. He's has trouble connecting to other people. He has a lot of sort of psychological issues and, and, and panic disorders. And uh, a lot of this stems from the fact that when he was a child, he had this very extreme traumatic experience and his mother is very problematic. And when he was a child, he had a imaginary friend named Daniel. So at 19, he decides, what if I could bring my imaginary friend back? And then Daniel comes back to him and he's now this very handsome, charismatic mm-hmm. young man. Um, and they start to have these adventures together and Daniel is really helping him to kind of break out of his shell and become social and become creative. But then Daniel essentially tries to, he wants more and he tries to take Luke's life over. And it uh, sort of goes from being a sort of a psychological thriller to something that actually becomes a cosmic horror. He's weak, he's lonely, and he's nothing without me. As you can hear, it's so interesting and cool. Um, yeah, look, I mean, you've got a great cast for this as well. Um, it's really cool. Uh, you've got, just one minute, give me a second. You've got Sasha Lane. Um, you've got, who are you two wonderful leads? Miles Robbins. And you've got Patrick Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And just, and some other brilliant. Mary Stuart Masterson, of course, as the mum. And just, wow. Did you, I mean, when you were casting, did you set out for certain feelings, looks? What were you going for? Because I don't think you could have cast it better. I know. I, mean, I, I love the cast. And they're great. It, like, yeah, looked I, out properly. I, I saw Sasha in American Honey probably as yes, far back yeah. as I feel like it was maybe 2016 when that came out. I saw it at, a, at Fantastic Fest in Austin. And, um, mm. and the minute I saw that movie, I was like, I must cast her. Like, she has to play Cassie. Like, there's no quest there's nobody else and um no. and so, so did you a, even think you could get her though did you think she was even possibly on your radar at that point because well, she was blowing it, up it kind of goes back to that thing we were saying earlier about uh when you feel worthy of something and when you just you know like mm. i was just like yeah she'll do the movie why not you know like <laughs> <laughs> really <laughs> um yeah so i had always wanted sure. her and then we were lucky to get her and my casting directors knew her and they were suggesting her and i was like are you kidding like she's my number one choice like let's go so that that was great to sort of get her involved right off the bat and and i met with her and and she really understood the script she really understood the the sense of you know having these demonic forces that might come from our own minds and how they uh, affect us. Like, I think she really connected to that. And, and she, she was just, she just mm-hmm. was the character. It was amazing. And um, the other guys, I mean, so I met Mile. I met one of the things, it, this goes back sort of to the preparation and, 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 and whatnot we were talking about before is that I really love auditions. I, I, I think a lot of people dread this part of the, the, the project, but 
for me, being in a room and having actors come in and then you can kind of play with them with your script and Mm. see, well, what what if we did this and what if we do that? And it's your first, it's, I treat it as an opportunity for me to start learning how I'm going to make the movie. That's great. A a really fun way to approach it, you know? Yeah, you've got an opportunity to go, oh, that line's slightly wrong. And oh, that's an interesting way they played it. Oh, well, if they did, I totally agree. You're already thinking about your movie and you're you're using these, in a weird way, these actors to get you where you want to be at the same time. But also casting, you know, going through that. Can they get to where you want to be? It's really interesting. It's great. And if you, you know, if you're, if you luckily... On this movie, we had great casting directors, so we were only seeing good actors. You know, it, it can be a slot. Mm-hmm. Like, if you go into an, I, I try to go into a, the audition process, like, just giving everything, like, so intensely involved in it. And so if you're seeing one person after the other who's just not a good actor, that's going to be a nightmare and so oh, draining. Done. But if you have somebody mm-hmm. who's only giving you good actors, they're not necessarily right for the part, but good actors every interaction yeah. you you have becomes valuable and and exciting and i walk away from the auditions really depleted and exhausted but so satisfied and you know in this movie in particular it because it's about this imaginary friend most of the movie is the main character and another character who nobody else can see standing around in the physical space of the frame interacting and 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 I, for a long time, I was like, well, that's really cool on paper. But how the fuck is that going to translate into a movie? And it, <laughs> and it wasn't until we did the auditions when I was able to finally have, you know, three people on their feet all talking and realize I was like, oh, that's actually going to be cool. That's like normally in a movie, you have two people in a scene and they're talking to each other. But in this movie, there's this always this third extra character commenting and moving and doing it's just going to make it all very dynamic. And that fits with the style. So I got very excited but up until the audition process, I was like, oh, God, I hope this movie isn't stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I love the audition process, but I think something I learned the other day, uh, or someone told me the other day, was if you go on to set and your actors are already in costume, it's a lot harder to find the character with them because they've already put on the costume. They feel like they're finding a character themselves. And then you go and try and talk to them, and now they might look regal or they might look, oh god scary or whatever in these mm. costumes whereas if you talk to them beforehand and properly talk to them and spend time skyping and going through it all it it really just you already have a relationship with them so basically what i'm saying is don't wait till you get on set oh my god Do as yeah. much as you can before as much as you can even if it's just chatting via text whatever it is it's just preparation and what you're talking about all the time is preparation and it's it's vital yeah, absolutely. Um, you must have done loads with this then. It sounds like you do. You love to really get in there with your actors and properly prepare and work yeah, we, through character development. Well, we had about, uh, you know, after the audition process, we, we had about a week of rehearsal time, which was just huge. Right. And, wow. you know, we really did That's a lot a with that. But, you know, so mm. in, the, in the process of casting it, so Sasha, I met. And she said yes, and I said awesome, and, and that was that for Sasha. I mean, when I went in to meet her at a coffee shop, and I just saw her sort of across, you know, <clears throat> across the room, and I gasped, like, out loud, just seeing her in person. Wow. I'm like, because <gasps> she's just so cool. So, mm-hmm. that, you know, and that's just, you just know, like, oh, I'm making the right decision here. Um, uh-huh. yeah. <clears throat> I met Miles at a bar in Brooklyn, and he... I'd, I'd really, he'd been in a movie called Blockers, which is a comedy, yep. and he's so funny and lifelike and loose in that movie, and I really loved that about him. And he 
desperately wanted to play Daniel, but I wanted him to play Luke. And um, that in itself was like cool because it's like, well, Luke is the character who wants to be Daniel. So maybe the actor should also want to be Daniel. And he, he actually had him audition for both parts, which is something that sort of comes in handy later in the movie. And he just, does, he yeah. understood, like, sort of philosophically understood what the movie was about and was talking to me about toxic masculinity and, you know, modern young men. And it was just like, he just gets it. You know, he's just, he's such a quirky weirdo as a, as a person. And, <laughs> um, and he's an untrained actor. Like, I don't think he's studied a lot of acting. He just sort of, uh, he generates empathy. And so he was yeah. brilliant. And then, yeah, and, and then Daniel, the character of Daniel had to be somebody who is like otherworldly gorgeous. He's a really handsome man. And, 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 and we'd been, you know, at, at first you kind of try to get major movie stars and they're not going to do your movie, mm-hmm. but you try. And, yeah. then, and then I met Patrick yeah. and I was like, well, th- this guy, I mean, you know, he's got this like pedigree and he's got these cheekbones so can mm-hmm. you know but does he have the the emotional depth and um we started talking and he he did some he taped himself doing auditions and we talked about it and we talked about it some more and it just seemed like he was going to bring he's such a different kind of actor than Miles so he was going to be a very different kind of character and I really loved that about him and you know like once I cast him the first thing he started talking about it's funny cuz you were talking about costumes it's like the first thing he wanted to know after we were like, okay, let's do this together. He was like, well, what kind of clothes am I going to wear? Here's some ideas I have about clothes. What color should my hair be? I think I should dye my hair, you know, and because I think he wanted to feel he's sort of a a public person, like weirdly just because of who his father is. And like, he's been in, he's done these kind of, you know, young YA kind of projects. And he's been a model that like every time he walks out onto the streets, carrying a cup of coffee, just Jared, like, publishes a photo of him, you know? So he's this very, like, public person, right. weirdly. Now, so and, people know it's Arnold Schwarzenegger's yeah, son. Right. And Miles Robbins, interestingly, is Tim Robbins' son. Yeah. So, yeah, which is Hollywood royalty right so there. So strange. But, I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so with, with Patrick, I think that in order to become this imaginary friend character, he wanted to find a way to start transforming away from being Patrick. And so, you know, talking right. about what kind of clothes, what kind of hair. And, and, you know, this is a thing people talk about actors. Some actors work from inside out and Miles was a very inside out person and meaning Mm -hmm. like what's the emotional point of view first and then building and building and other actors like to work from outside in and they'll be like, well, maybe I'll have a bird on my shoulder or, you know, in in the case of Patrick, it was like, what do I, maybe I should wear this shirt and these sunglasses and this hair. And that allows them to step into this other person and become them and neither is right or wrong and i think it's very it's important for a director to understand what kind of actor you're dealing with and support that you know and like and if i'd been like every if i had said to patrick like hey man like i fuck talking about the hair like what's the emotional core like that would just spook him and we'd have conflict for no reason so it's not about how i want to work it's about how they want to work and it's so important to do that because otherwise you you kind of get lost in you're trying to treat every actor the same, and they're not. You can't do that. It's not a piece of furniture. Right. You've, you've got to really think as a director, and that's why it's so hard being a director because there's so many things you have to think of. Not only what color top someone's wearing, or what, you know, curtains need to be drawn, closed, or open. You've got to think about each actor's individual needs, and that's, you know, that's a job in itself. Um, like being a teacher, every student's different, and every actor is different, and they want a different. Some actors like to be almost told what to do. Others hate that. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and you've got to be really careful you don't do it to the wrong person uh, because it's, yeah, it's not right. Yeah. It's not right. Yeah. So can we just jump back slightly because it'd be really interesting how you managed to raise the money for this film, um, how it all came together. Was it cast dependent at that point or had you already moved forward in terms of, no, no, I've got, I've got some funding for the movie and I can go? Yeah. I th- how did it work? So with this movie, so this company Spectre Vision produced it and that's Elijah mm-hmm. Wood's company and... Elijah and his three partners are these great producers. The movie they did right before mine was Mandy. The movie that they did right after mine was uh, Color Out of Space, the Richard Stanley movie, which is about to premiere at TIFF. So they're, you know, so they have this like, uh, you know, this approach of making these cool filmmaker driven movies. And so they have sort of a brand identity. And so once they decided that they wanted to do the movie, with me, it was really, I didn't do any of the financing. On my first movie, it was very involved. How the fuck do we raise this money? On this movie, I didn't really have any, I just put my trust in them. And they went to Cannes and they found financers um, and they got a commitment to do the movie that miraculously was not entirely cast dependent. So the financers had uh, the ability to say yes or no based on our cast. But there was a lot of back and forth and negotiation that made that okay. So we we, mm. we sort of lucked out in in that way. So how did you how did you get them on board in the first place? Elijah Wood and his oh, team, yeah, uh, Daniel Noah and Josh C. Waller and Lisa Wallen. How, how did you get them involved in the first place? Was it based on your your previous feature? Yeah, that's what it was. So um, we, my writing partner Brian and I. We wrote Daniel Isn't Real about seven and a half years ago. It was based on his novel. I I read his novel. I met him, and I liked him, and so I read his novel, and then I said, let's do this, and we started working on it. And then after we'd um, gotten to a point on that project where we had a script that we liked, I said, hey, Brian, I think I have completely conned you and uh, and let (laughs) let us down a a weird path because there's no way that for my first feature we're going to raise enough money to make this totally – insane ambitious weird movie uh sorry um but what if we uh write another movie that would be written to be really inexpensive and then we could make that and then we could make this and he miraculously agreed to that also so that's where the idea of making some kind of hate came from was we need to make a movie so that we can make a movie. <laughs> Mate, totally. And well, then, this is what people forget sometimes. They go, why can't I make a movie? Because you haven't made one yet. Yeah, it's, Do you know what I mean? Go it's out and so make one. It's so circuitous. It's so frustrating, it's totally but it's also so true. And it's like, you know, you yeah. just have to sort of find a way to make that first movie. And um, and so we we were like, okay, let's just write something we can do for like, you know, $200,000. That seems reasonable. And then even that, it took years to get that made. Mm. You know, and you, you, you okay. like nothing is ever like... Well, we just do that so we can, you know, everything becomes an all-consuming, life-destroying passion. <laughs> and, um, you know, because like I said, we wound up <clears throat> in Vancouver and then, you know, things falling apart. And, you know, it was just like it just went on for years. But then we made that movie and it played at a it, – its world premiere was at a, a festival called the Stanley Film Festival, which transformed into the Overlook Festival, which is now, you know, it was in New Orleans, but in 2015, it was called Stanley, and it was in Colorado. And Mm -hmm. um, so we premiered there, and Spectre Vision had a movie there as well. And uh, they might have actually had two movies there, Cooties and The Boy. Um, And I remembered my first day there, I saw Josh Waller sitting at the 
at the restaurant eating breakfast and looking at his laptop, somebody must have pointed out to me who he was. And and I had been emailing SpectreVision for years, since they were founded. And when they first started, they were called Woodshed. Then they changed their name. Like, I had been trying to get in touch with them forever because I was like, they're making like arty, cool, cool, yeah, arty horror movies. Like, that's my jam. Like, these guys are going to love me. And so I was constantly trying to get in touch with them, constantly emailing them, never hearing. Like, I would have loved for them to have done some kind of hate, but they didn't get back to me. So I walked up to Josh and I was like, hey man, I've got a movie here. You got a movie here. You went, hey, you didn't get back to me, motherfucker. Well, I did. I did. I did say that. I said, you know, I hate, and I've been trying to get in touch. I didn't say motherfucker. I said, I've been trying to get in touch with you. Um, you know, but it's great to finally meet you. And then he had his laptop there, so he scrolled through, and he was like, "Oh yeah, I see all your emails here." Like, and he had you know <laughs> oh, unanswered emails out. going back it. for years. And, <laughs> but it was just sort of fun, you know. What are you going to say at that point? Fuck you! No, you're going to be yeah, like exactly. grateful yeah, you that you're having no. the conversation. And he's you know busy I making movies. That. He doesn't owe me a, a return. I don't resent no, anybody. Nothing. For that. Of course he doesn't. And um, but no, he was never. like, "Cool, like I'd love to see your movie. Like, sounds good." And so he saw it. And he really liked it. And then he told all of his other partners that they had to see it. And they all really liked it. And so that was incredibly fortunate because not everybody liked some kind of hate. But these guys, at the very least, sort of saw the intent of it and understood the directorial voice and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. So the next thing I know, I was back in L.A. meeting with them and telling them about Daniel and gave them the script. And, you know, a week or two later... They said, we all read the script and we all like it and we all want to make this movie. And then, you know, it was wow. years before it actually came together. But it, you know, in in this very slow moving way, it worked out exactly as I had hoped it would, which is you make your tiny movie with very little support and then people see it and appreciate it. And then they want to come on and help you with your next thing. And it was just it was delightful yeah. to see that that sort of happened. Um, oh, that's so nice, isn't it? It and so I think that'd be so lovely for a lot of our listeners out there who sort of go, "Yeah, okay, I want to go make one, but what happens if it doesn't do well enough?" Or da 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 da. Well, someone out there will like it yeah. if you've got a unique voice and vision, and you believe in your filmmaking, you know, ambitions. Why not? If your script's good enough for the next one, someone likes what you've done on the first one. Hey, you know, uh, look what's happened to you, Adam. It's it's great, absolutely. You know, and big things move forward. Um, and one and good for you one for keep funny, writing to, yeah, oh God, to yeah. them as well. I mean, one, I mean right. fair play. Great. <laughs> one, one, one funny tidbit about that is, um, so there was another, Brian and I wrote an, a third script, um, and it was after we were in Vancouver and the whole movie fell apart, um, and I had to drive back to L.A. and still wasn't really considering myself a real filmmaker, uh, mm. I, I started writing this movie and then bought, brought Brian in to work on it with me that was like a really crazy, low-budget, kind of David Lynch-style movie that was really about heartbreak and um, these kind of desolate feelings. And that was the movie that I thought I was going to make next after uh, some kind right. of hate. And when yeah. I, So when I went to meet Daniel Noah from SpectreVision, I was bringing him that movie. It was called Dr- oh, yeah. Drained. And I wanted to shoot it in Singapore. And I had like a massive lookbook and like photos I had taken in Singapore where I went there and scouted all these locations. And the whole drive there, I was like rehearsing my pitch, my 15 minute mm-hmm. pitch where I talk about here's what the movie, here's the story. Da, da, da. And um, so I sat down and we talked for a while. <clears throat> you know, when you have these meetings, the first 15, 20 minutes off and you're just kind of getting to know each other and, you know, you you have to learn to be very patient that you're not just there to, like, attack them with your vision. You're just there to hang out and yeah. get to know each other. 
And then, uh, and then I was like, well, here's this movie that I want to do. And I started, I got about half a sentence into this pitch. And Dan, Dan said, Hey man, like, uh, I have to tell you, that sounds like the kind of movie that we're not really interested in doing anymore. Like, you know, our first few movies were really experimental horror and very low budget and super cool. And we're very proud of them, but we're trying to move and to do things that are a little bit bigger and a little bit more commercial. And I was like, uh, right. Oh, and so then, but I also had Daniel isn't real. And I was like, well, that's totally, you know, and I had to just pivot in my, like, you can't be like, no, I want you to listen to the picture. Like, no, you're wrong. Or like, once mm-hmm. you hear it, you're going to agree. you like, or, or go, fuck you, flip yeah. the table over. These yeah, are all, exactly. you're, you're, wrong. You know, you're scrolling that. through the, you know, it's like the Terminator when he's like, fuck you, asshole. You're scrolling through all these responses. Yeah. None of those are the correct response. Let me tell you, the only <laughs> correct response is, okay, yeah, cool. Here's this other thing. So you have there to you have go. another thing. And um mm-hmm. and luckily I did and I was like okay yeah man no problem well I've got this other thing it sounds like the kind of thing you'd be into it's about an imaginary friend that comes back to an adult and he said that sounds awesome Brilliant. send it to me and that was the extent wow. of the the verbal pitch you know like with the wow. other movie I had this whole thing and this whole journey and it got shut down instantly and the other one I just had the one line well that sounds great that's exactly the kind of movie we're talking and that doesn't mean they greenlit the movie but it said that they were yeah. they would read the script which is the hurdle you're trying right. to get to. And, um, Isn't that interesting? And, that, and then it right? worked. The fact that we, yeah, and it worked. And we work all that time to try and perfect something. And actually it comes down to who wants something at the right time that they like a certain hook. And it was like that in Cannes. I'm sure you've been to Cannes where you're pitching all the time. You're talking to people all the time. And then suddenly that moment happens where you're going, yeah, I've got this idea. And da, 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 and they go, yeah. And you go, well, you've got these other three. And they go, hang on, what was that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm interested. Send me that one. Mm-hmm. You go, I just said made it up. I just made one line up about something that I was thinking oh, really? about the day before. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and then and then suddenly that's the one you're suddenly going, right, okay, we'll write a pitch. and Because it was in the back of your mind all the time. But I found that, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. And mm-hmm. it is all about who is looking for a certain thing at the right time that you happen to be in the right place, you know? That's what happened with the dare. It was just right place at the right time. Wait, is, is that how the dare happened? That's the one that you came up with? It no, not a can. No, no. But it was me talking to someone who I knew in London just mentioning this project. And he went, oh, I, I know someone. Huh? You know, it's yeah. literally like that. All years of working your ass off on trying to get something made and it can just be a really brief conversation you're passing someone in the street and this go oh yeah which was julian kostov who ended up being my producer and he took it to the the team at bulgaria and suddenly well i say suddenly you know year year and a half two years later we're actually on set filming it but the fact was it got through the door yeah and that's that's really interesting i think with filmmaking you've all i think you've always got to be ready you've always got to know that this project you're working on now might not be your next project you know, and I, I think that's really interesting to have quite a few. Do you have quite a few ready to go all the time? Like in that case of Daniel Isn't Real and the other one you were talking about. To, do you have a couple now that you're going, I've got two or three yeah, that are ready I mean, to go? I, I, I'm not always that strategic about it, but I think just because of the how time works, you know, like I just I keep creating things. So, um, you know, for example, I I wrote... Another, so I said, you know, Brian and I wrote this movie called Drained. So that's a script that I now, mm-hmm. now have that I'm still interested in making. I wrote, I started writing a movie um, several years ago. Um, so that's a script that I have. And then when our movie got accepted to South by Southwest, 
I said to Brian, Congratulations. thank you. I, yeah. I said to Brian, that was our world premiere for it. I said to Brian, we have to have a script that's ready to go by the time the movie premieres because people are going to be saying what's next. So we did, yep. we had that, you know, we, we knew that, you know, a couple months in advance and we just like rocked a new movie. Um, so that, you know, all of that to say, so now I have, you know, I have three scripts. I have a number of pictures cause you're always coming up with things and, and, and developing always, these ideas. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it would if you're so successful that uh your rate of making things outpaces what you've already written, then that's a great problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, the funny thing, I read an interview with Harmony Corinne recently, and you know, I love mm. Harmony. I've been obsessed with his career for his entire life. I, I think he's just an outstanding genius. But he's he's such a unique and, and and in some ways it got in my head because for a while I was like how can I be more like him and I just don't think you anybody can be like somebody like that and I read an interview with him recently where he was talking about he had written this movie this crime movie and he had all these big stars in it I can't remember who like I don't know Colin Farrell or I don't know he was just a big movie and then it was like the schedule slightly didn't work out and then he was like oh, I don't mm-hmm. feel like doing that anymore. And he said, and he said in this interview, he was like, I just don't understand these people who write these movies way in advance and then do them later. Like, how can you do something if you're not feeling it in the moment? It's like, okay, bro. (laughs) Like, I understand that you are a super genius. Yeah. That's unparalleled. Yeah. But I don't know how Mm -hmm. anybody can live like that. It took me so long to do anything that if I kept. I just don't know how you, if you just keep changing gears, how you're going to get anything done. But he is a unique person. I don't recommend that we model ourselves after him, but, but I thought it was fascinating to see, uh, you know, sort of a window that's the opposite of how it feels like it really mechanically works. And maybe for him, that's incredible. You know, that's, that's why he lives in such a liquid, amazing style. And if you can do it, great, but I wouldn't know how to do that. No, I won't. So those who don't know, he, he made Spring Breakers with James Franco recently, but was known for so many other, other uh, films. He's just been around for a long time. Um, I find that fascinating. And maybe he's in that position where he can just drop things. You sort of, you know, whereas maybe we're not there yet. Right. I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe it's a, he, he goes through certain periods of developing something and then goes, I'm just going to drop yeah. this now. Yeah. And then he's like, fuck it. Because I'll just hang can. out on my boat for a while and make yeah. you know, skateboard art yeah. and then come back around to it whereas, when it's time to Exactly. Come back whereas to we it. can't, we spend a lot of time developing something. We kind of want to see it at least through. Oh, I, do you know what? I'll try this one again because I've worked really. You know, yeah. I, I like this project. I love it. I've fallen in love with it. I mean, you know? I think and the thing that works for me that sort of like speaks to that is that it, le- you know, I, it might not, he talks about it in t- like he's very present. You know, he's like, well, I feel like this now, so I'm going to do it now. But for me, it's like, okay, I, I know what this was about when I wrote it. I know what the feelings were about when I uh, came up with this. So I, I'll just reconnect with those feelings. And, and that, you know, mm. I think, um, that that still works for me. So when it was time, and, well, actually, you know, and I also, let me say this about, because with Daniel, when it came time, when it was sort of, okay, now the money has come through and you're going to make this movie, bro. Uh, mm. I, I did have a moment where I went, oh, is this even still relevant? And, um, and, and, and sort of, yeah. and, and, and I had a moment of, of, and I was like, what was I trying to do when I, when we first wrote this movie? And and I realized that what I was trying to do when we first wrote the movie was no longer interesting to me, and was and no longer felt relevant, because when I f- when I was first involved with it, 
And I get, you know, like I say, seven and a half years ago, I wanted to do a project that that presented an entirely nihilistic worldview that was sort of saying, like, you're going to die and the world sucks and we're all fucked and here and and you're not paying attention to this fact yep. and you need to know that this is yeah. true that was that felt like very important to me and then after the uh in the United States elections of 2016 a, a little known event that had no mm, world repercussions um <laughs> i felt like people uh that this sort of understanding of doom and nihilism became completely mainstream and like you cannot read an article in Vanity Fair about lipstick that doesn't begin with the world is a dumpster fire and we're all going to die. So buy this lipstick in the meantime, right? Like <laughs> at which point, I, totally. so I was like, well now my, my point of view is dumb. I don't, I don't we don't need another mm-hmm. horror movie about nihilism. So then I, so right at the moment that we were getting greenlit, I was going, what the fuck is this actually about oh, now? And I sort of had to wow. re understand. I was like, okay, well what's the next level? The next level is, how do we remain empathetic or fight for empathy despite the fact that we know we're in this, you know, spiraling nihilistic death world? And that's what the movie's about. And that really like reinvigorated me from kind of an emotional point of view about why the movie would be relevant. And it becomes entirely what the movie is. But, but so I think that there's, you know, we can't be quite as flexible as harmony, but we can sort of not, don't be afraid to, reassess what your thing is and how you can make it meaningful to your feelings in the present so how did you let's talk about on set then for you what did you bring to your second film your second major film that you from your first one were you still as stringent were you still as you know did you go through every single shot and every single you know preparation style i did 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 exactly yeah i did the same thing but i did it more uh, rigorously. So, you know, the, the style guide for some kind of hate was however many pages and it had style sections and sequences and all that. And, the, and this new one had all of that and more. And I, and I filled the style guide this time with lots of images and colors and color palettes. And just like some kind of hate, this movie also has a style arc. It's a different style arc. It's the style arc that is relevant to this film, but it essentially starts with, um, a style that represents isolation and depression and, you know, the character state of mind and then goes into a, a wild, colorful, manic, kinetic maximalist approach. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, with a few other stops along the way and afterwards, but, you know, sort of thinking through how we're going to get, you know, visually and stylistically from one place to another. And, 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 you know, my first movie, I really honestly was learning how to make a movie like Bengji the cinematographer would, especially in our first week of shooting, would say, would like really teach me what blocking was. You know, he'd be like, you know, you can have a character start in a wide shot and walk into his close up and time that to be with when he sit. And I was like, whoa, Benji, you really went to, (laughs) you went to film school. Like, that's so cool. You know? And, um, (laughs) and he'd be like, you know, you got to get your actors to like really hit their marks and stand. Cause, and of course, you know, I'd never made a movie and all of these kids, hadn't done a lot of movies and everybody's kind of like loosely hitting their marks and wiggling around. And then it it was just weird in the front, you know, and like sort of learning Mm. how to do storytelling with camera and blocking was a big part. So, so now I was able to bring all of that to the second movie and approach it like, okay, now I understand what a movie is. 
Now I understand, mm, okay. for example, what I'm learning when I watch other movies and break down their sequences and see how they shot them. Like, I, you know, I'm not just like, this looks cool, but it's like, oh, look at what they're doing. How can we learn from, you know, so I, I just, I had so much more experience in sort of how to think about what a movie would be. And so, yeah, so, so we, I had made a 40 page style guide that was very rigorous and it, and included a very important section about how do we shoot an imaginary friend. And it was this like six rule thing that had to do with like, he can only be seen, you know, when people are looking at, when people perceive this, he's this way and we can shoot a profile if it means a two shot and we can, he can be dirty in the frame, but he can't be clean. You know, all of these really specific things, hopefully not that the audience would really recognize that that's happening, but that they would feel as though they're not being betrayed by the language of the movie. So that they there can sort go. of go. Unconsciously yeah. understood that. Yeah, absolutely. They'll, it seeps in. They'll join us it on does. the ride of, we're looking at this mm. character that nobody else can see, but one person can see it, even if he's physically in the frame with other people. We had a, you know, you, I just wanted to, because I, you know, when I first started in on this movie, a lot of people told me, oh, it's like Drop Dead Fred. So, mm-hmm. which I had never seen so, before. So like, I watched oh. Drop Dead Fred, and, like, I understand why that is a movie that that was exciting for people when they were kids. An imaginary friend. Yeah. yeah when and, you're I, a kid, and I understand sure. why people are sort of nostalgic for it. But but I felt like the, the style of Drop Dead Fred really betrays it. Like, it doesn't really – it doesn't work for me, like, cinematically. <clears throat> and, um, and so I, I, you know, I was like, well, we've got to – sort of up up our game a little bit. Let's let's look more at like Fight Club than Drop Dead Fred and like, you know, sort of understand how, how things can be believable. Um, but so, yeah, so a really rigorous approach to the style. And then, again, every single rule gets broken at a certain point in the movie. But because we're so rigorous about it in understanding what it is and planning for it, I think the, that idea that we're not betraying the audience, that they can sort of feel the what's happening and why it's happening, it persists. Mm. That's lovely. I think, I think you've got to be open on set, right? I think you've, you've, if you're too rigorous, obviously your actors do different things than you set out anyway. If you go, right, I'm going to move the camera from here to here and this is what it means. I'm going to slowly push into the actor's face and that. And the actors go, well, I don't want to do that. It doesn't feel real. Uh, you know what I mean? You've, you've got to be open on set to move as a director and keep your mind on top of what the scene is, but at the same time, tell the story and help your actors and help the cinematography, you know, all that kind of stuff at the same time. I take it you were finding things like that constantly. Oh, for sure. And you just find new ideas. I mean, one thing that drove my producer insane was that, so we had a, we had a week of rehearsals and we had everything shot listed and planned. And I had a 40 page style guide, but I would still show up in the morning and the actors would come in and I'd go, what do you guys want to do? I don't know what we should do now. I and, love this, and, though. Sure. And, and that wasn't entirely true that I didn't know. Of course And I wasn't you did. entirely yeah, open you, to anything, but, but I wanted to... Mm-hmm. Now we're in the space. Like, we just rehearsed this whole thing in an yeah. office building. And now we're in the space, and all the cool things are here, and we're feeling what we're feeling. Maybe we're bummed out today. Maybe we're stoked. Whatever it is. Like, mm-hmm. allow the moment to be a part of, of what you're filming. That was important. But it, it sort of stressed out. Uh, and, because we had such and because, little time. Yeah. That it's like, okay, are we really going to stand around and daydream about what to do? We're going to shoot the nah. fucking scene. So you have to... I'm exactly. still learning how to modulate this sense of, like, openness and, uh, you know, efficiency. 
think yes. that's a really... And you were so prepared, you see, because you were over-prepared in a good way. Yeah. It meant that when you got there, you were confident because you went, well, I can always go back to... Exactly. My... That's exactly but, right. So therefore, I'm free to play. Yeah. And once you're free to play, the magic happens. That's exactly right. And that's all about preparation. If you'd come in and gone, oh, God, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, my God, the actors feel that, the crew feel that. And suddenly you've got this, you know set that's already full of angst and you know you'd already had a massage a coffee <laughs> you know yoga yeah. in the morning bit yeah. of boxing yeah. come in hey guys what are we doing <laughs> i mean to be fair I and I, you know and it's always good to remind your listeners of this kind of thing there are so many days on that set where i just felt like i wanted to curl up in a ball and die and you're and you're just going okay. like nothing is working we're running out of time i just had to cut a scene so we can get through this scene everybody hates me What's going, you know, but you just got to keep going anyway. But, but those feelings, the thing that I learned and it's so crucial is that those kind of feelings are not giving you information. They're not telling you anything that's true about the world. They're just, they're just mm. this bad vibe that is part of doing something that's a big deal. And you can't listen to those voices even. And, you know, so, you know, or else why the fuck would you even ever do this again? Like knowing that I'm going to feel like that all the time. Why am I currently desperately trying to make my next movie? Because I look back mm-hmm. on it and I'm like, I really remember that one day when I was standing there in the kitchen and I was like, I just want to throw up. I'm so tired. This is miserable. This movie's horrible. <laughs> I've wasted all these people time. You know, and it's just like, ugh, it's just dumb. It's just, you know, the devil's mantra and you don't need it. Mm. But you can't. No. You can't freak out that you're having those thoughts and feelings either. So you've got to, it comes back to yeah, all, all see, that yoga, man. All that yoga starts paying Yeah, off. you've got because that's the thing as a director. You can't let on. That's the other thing. You've got to say, maybe it's your DP, maybe it's your producer, but you can't to your actors that right. you don't know what you're doing. Right, right. You've, you, even if you don't, you've lost the plot. You've still got to go, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to tell you in a minute. <laughs> yeah. and you Allow me a minute to tell you. And you're constantly you know? modulating, like, what are you fighting who are you fighting with? How are you fighting? What are you letting go? You know, there was a moment, there was mm-hmm. one scene we were shooting where I, I blocked it out. And, um, and one of the actors was like, I really don't like this blocking. I don't want to sit on this couch. Oh, I want to cr- oh, no. cross. Yeah. And I was like, I really need you to sit on this couch because this shot, we lined it up and he was like, I'm not going to do it. And he I'm really, would, he really wouldn't do it. And I had the oh. thought, I was like, should I say, this is what I bet Sam Peckinpah would have done. I had a Sam, Sam, Sam Peckinpah moment where I was like, <laughs> I'm going to point the camera at the couch. And if you sit there and say your line, you'll be in the shot. And if you walk across <sighs> and say your line, you're not going to be in the shot. But that's what I'm shooting. And I really, wow. really wanted to do that. And I felt very wow. passionate. I was like, is that going to make me a good director or a bad director? Is that going to be cool? Like, and then I was finally like, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think that's what I need to do. I think I'm going to let the actor... Do his thing. I'm not going to keep arguing with it. I'm not going to try to seduce him into seeing it my way. Let's see what happens if I let him do his thing. And it actually works out quite nice. And you're not going to watch this movie being like, this movie's pretty good, but that one scene, if only he had been sitting on the couch. (laughs) It's so true. We can get so bogged down and stuff like that. And especially on set, it's like the minor tour of every little moment feels like it's huge. Like that could have kicked off massively and you'd have gone, well, I'm putting the camera here and tough shit because you'd have been stressed from something else or whatever it was. And the fact that you didn't in the end is it shows you're a good director because you kind of went I've, I've got to work with the actor for the rest of this yeah. time for one thing but also that doesn't help anyone else or the movie because now i've got a shot with a pissed off actor sat in it 
you know, and it's like, oh, well, you, and I think there was a time give and take. There's, there may or may not be directors who still work that way. I, I think there was a time when that really, then directors really. I mean, I've heard stories about, I don't I, it, that Paul Newman. I don't know who it was, some actor, and maybe it was uh, John Ford, and they just they spent like mm-hmm. three days shooting the same scene because the director was saying, you're going to put down the cup and then you're going to go over here and say the line. And the actor was like, nope. And he just wouldn't, and they just kept shooting it and they came in the next day and shot it again. And, oh and Ford God. was like, we're going to shoot this until you do it my way. And like, I, you know, What's the I don't know. It's money. Yeah. That's not too much money. Man. I don't think we can do, I don't, yeah. I think we have to live in a sort of more loving and collaborative place in, in filmmaking. And there was sort yeah. of a time for that kind of like, you know, auteur, crazy person, patriarch, but none of us really feel like being that person anymore. But I did, I liked imagining, I liked, I liked knowing that it like in my soul, I could, I I could come up with a good Sam Peckinpah approach, you know? Yes. In your dream. You know what I mean? That night (laughs) you thought about it and yeah, I could have done that. What would have happened? Let's play this out. (laughs) And for the good of the movie, it worked out well. And like you say, no one went, I wish you were sitting on the couch in that scene, you know? So, it's it's just sometimes keep thinking, isn't it? Um, uh, so, any other advice you can give young filmmakers out there, people who are maybe moving on to their second movie or third or whatever? Is there anything you that you go? Do you know what? That's I wish I'd done that or learned that earlier. Well, um, gosh, uh, 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 I don't know. I don't know the answer can, to that. Sorry, I, 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 um, <laughs> I, I feel like the, the I have started to enjoy watching movies even even more than I ever. Obviously, I always loved movies, and it was the thing that I wanted to do. But but since I've started to like really understand how shots work, I have really enjoyed watching movies, and and I am getting I get so much out of watching older movies. I think it's I think it's the most valuable thing to to sort of study things that are not quite our contemporaries and, and think about like, how would I, so I see what they're doing in this shot. How could I take something like that and use it? And I, I think it's, it's not ripping off if you are, um, you know, sort of enthusiastically borrowing something and bending it to your purposes. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, you know, one of the important parts of preparation beyond my 40 page style guide was I made clips of all of these movies I like, and I shared them with everybody in the entire crew. And so, you know, it'll be like these sort of 30-minute best-of shots from Jacob's Ladder and Fight Club and The Exorcist and um, uh, Friedkin's first movie called Boys in the Band was a big influence on Mm -hmm. me and, um, and things like this and Persona, and then show them to everybody. And so, and, you know, like Eileen, who is my camera operator, not even my cinematographer, my camera operator, she watched all this stuff and she would come in and be like, you know, there was this one shot in Persona. It was so insane. And then I'd be like, oh, wow, you're right. That is insane. Let's use it right here today on this thing when we're, you know, and like you, 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 you generate ideas by like studying the things that are the greatest and that you would aspire to and try to understand what makes them work so that you can use them, you know, and sort of meld them into your own personality. I think that's a really helpful thing to do. Honestly, thank you so much. This has been really great. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. I think our listeners are going to get loads from this. Um, so Daniel isn't real. When can people watch it? Cause you're just about to finish the festival run. What is happening next? Yeah, We've got a bit more festival stuff happening. We're going to go to Sitges in Spain in October, mm. which is going to be mm-hmm. really exciting. And then it's going to play in Brooklyn. Mm. For the Brooklyn Horror 
festival, which is cool because we shot the movie in Brooklyn. So I'm really excited to make that triumphant return. Oh, she did. Yeah. And then in the United States, it comes out on December 6th in, uh, you know, day and date, which means in the theaters and on the iTunes and everything. It comes out there all at once and then coming out on Shudder next year. In the UK, Arrow Films is releasing it. Oh, same as us for Serial Killer's Guide to Life. Yeah, and they are amazing. When I was was in the UK last week, I recorded a uh, a commentary track for the Blu-ray that they're going to put out, um, which was very cool. I think think the Arrow release is going to be the definitive version of this movie. They're just such a great company. They really want to pack it with extras and art and all this cool stuff. So they'll be putting it in theaters and blu-ray i don't know if they've announced it yet it'll be either in december or january in the uk Mm -hmm. so so look for for arrow for that and then if you follow me on twitter at adam egypt um i will you know obviously constantly go on and on about when it's coming out and i also try to use my twitter platform as a way to connect to filmmakers in a way to like i've shared a lot of stuff you know i've published bits and pieces from my style guide and talked about my process and, and all that on because I've been finding that I really enjoy sharing the process and trying to be helpful. So that's the platform I've found that's the best way for me to do that for now. I love it. We do too. That's why I do the podcast to share as much as we can. And we find Twitter is the best for that, for letting our listeners know what's happening, what's going on with all our films and with everyone else's who's been on as well. So I'll put all the links to that in the show notes for you, for your Twitter, for your website as well. And for, uh, well, that's probably it, isn't it? Until the 6th of December, when I'll put the link up again for the release of the film. And I'll probably put the podcast out again. I'll certainly do links oh, lovely. to it. So. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Honestly, Daniel Isn't Real is absolutely fantastic film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm so glad I got out of the sea and out the, off the beach to watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for leaving the beach. I mean, that's hardcore to, to walk away from a beach it to go see a movie. It was hardcore. It was. It was warm as well. Though it was raining at that point, so mm. it, but it was still warm. It's a weird, weird experience. Um, you can follow me at Giles Alderson on Twitter or you can follow the Filmmakers Podcast at Filmmakers Pod on Twitter or you can go to filmmakerspodcast.com where you can find our whole back catalogue of podcasts which I think is 125 now. I can't count anymore. Um, but there is loads of facts and figures and info about filmmaking including finance episodes including writing episodes including editing episodes whatever you need to filmmaking there's loads just go through it all and if you really like us tell your friends and if you really really like us go to apple itunes podcasts and click five star and give us a nice review why not um being prepared as adam said is everything you can make your indie film but know who your audience is and get out there and do it and remember if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it's your duty to send that elevator back down. Adam, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This was amazing. I really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Until next Tuesday, everyone. And if you're going to the Make Your Film event, I'll see you tonight. If not, I'll see you very soon. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>